0: Welcome to Betrayal Trauma Recovery. This is Anne. Wendy is with me today. She is the average wife of an addict that <laughs> all of us are. She's amazing. She's an excellent writer. Wendy has a particular interest in the topic of rape within marriage. And so that's what we're going to be discussing today. Welcome, Wendy. Hi, Anne. So, Wendy, you have a particular interest in this topic. When did this interest begin
1: my husband and i have been married for about 15 and a half years and i found out a couple years in that he had viewed porn and masturbated and i not knowing much i was like okay i didn't know what to make of it i mean i was crushed i remember the first time i found out i went downstairs and i was curled up in a ball on the living room floor and just crying and it's pretty much like the only time i remember being that devastated i guess and then he would disclose every so often that he had viewed porn or masturbated and of course it seemed like it was just that one time he started going to support group about eight years ago he would go off and on and then about two or three years ago, he actually started working some recovery and then I went to a support group and that's when I discovered this whole new world. <laughs> and I found out way more than I guess I ever wanted to know, but it has been really helpful for me. And so he has admitted to raping me in my sleep. And yes, I am a very heavy sleeper, so it's possible, but I distinctly remembered waking up a few times just feeling like I had had sex, but I didn't remember having sex. And so I'm thinking that those are the times when he did that. And he would use my body to act out. I just remember feeling worthless and I felt like everything in our relationship that was wrong was my fault. I had lost my sex drive after I had my first child, which was about 10 months after we got married. I just felt that it was all my fault because I didn't have a sex drive because I didn't enjoy sex
0: quite so much. I understand how you feel because I lost my sex drive pretty much two days after I got married. I mean, I still tried to enjoy it and like really like pretended like I enjoyed it and tried to be all sexy and everything, but... It was bad from the very beginning. I just felt like an object. Like, I remember right after we got married, within a week, right? You know, we would have sex. And then afterward, I would say, what are you thinking about right now? Thinking he would say, how grateful I am to be married to you or how much I love you or something. And he would say, bike parts or something like that. And he would just say something completely unrelated to me. It would just be completely disconnected. It was about that time that I was like, this... This isn't what I thought it would be, right? This is not fun for me at all. This has nothing to do with me. This is all about him. From then on, my sex drive was just nothing.
1: Right. Well, see, and I really enjoyed sex when we first got married. And for most of my pregnancy, and then near the end of my pregnancy, I just got huge. I mean, I'm 5'2", and I had an 8-pound, 11-ounce baby. So <laughs> so I was extremely uncomfortable. I couldn't even sleep in our bed. I slept sitting up on the couch And so I think that was about the time when I lost my sex drive. And then it just never came back. After I had the baby, I suffered from what I thought was postpartum depression. And so I went to counseling and I got better for a little while, but I I just always felt like everything was my fault and any issues that we were having was my fault. And there were people around me saying the same thing, making the same indications, it was just implied by their attitude towards me. And someone even told me that I should have sex with my husband anytime he wanted. And that made me feel terrible. And I didn't tell my husband about that for four months. I kept that to myself. And it was already a really bad time in my life. And I just felt so worthless. And when I started working my own recovery, And for a while, I was like, oh, well, my husband never sexually abused me. He never raped me. I really thought that early in recovery. And then as I learned more and more about this topic, I was like, oh my gosh, that is exactly what happened. I don't want other women to experience the same thing I experienced for so long because it's just really been hard. And he's working pretty solid recovery now. We're still not at the best place ever, but it's been fairly good. Was
0: it before or after he told you that he had repeatedly raped you in your sleep, that you became interested in the topic? Or did you come to the realization that you had been repeatedly raped by your husband and then you became interested in the topic? Well,
1: I came to the realization that he had sexually abused me and then he told me that he had raped me. It was there in the back of my mind. It didn't really spark a huge interest. Really, it was when I started school this winter that I really got interested in it. And I started doing some more research. And I, I did a speech on it for my public speaking class. And I wrote an article on it for my writing class.
0: How did the research go? What did you learn
1: so I was looking up in the school library online, I was looking for studies on sexual abuse and marriage and I was coming up empty. I, I found stuff on sexual abuse and marriage in Nigeria and a couple other foreign countries, but I didn't find anything on it in general or or even in America, in the US. And there aren't really any statistics. So that's why I was unable to find any statistics. I just did a Google search and I put in sexual abuse and marriage. And this study came up where they called it wife rape. And I was like, oh. And so I think that's when it really hit home that that's really what it was. And I just had never equated the two because that's not what TV shows it looking like, and that's not what the movies say, and that's not even what some books say it is, and so once I had that, I was able to find a few more studies on it. There still wasn't a whole lot of research, but I was able to find more, and then it led me to other resources, but it really hit me that it really was rape, and
0: it's a real thing. In conference for my church, one of the speakers called it non-consensual immorality. And I thought that's also called rape. It's also called sexual assault, right? And I'm not sure why he chose not to use those words, but I thought it was very strange to call it non-consensual immorality when there's really a word for it i think it's powerful to call it rape within marriage and i think it's powerful to call it sexual assault within marriage so i actually ended up on the national domestic
1: violence hotline website and it's just the hotline.org i believe and it actually has definitions of sexual abuse obviously the physical assault part of it but it also talked about coercion And that was the one that I had mostly experienced was the coercion part of it. My husband did rape me because he confessed to that. But it was the coercion part that really struck me and really hit home. And it struck a chord with me. And I was like,
0: that's exactly what I experienced. So what does coercion look like? Can you list the things that women should be looking for? Sure. The
1: first thing they mention is making you feel like you owe them because you're married to them, you're in a relationship, they spent money on you, they bought you a gift, giving you drugs and alcohol to loosen up your inhibitions, playing on the fact that you're in a relationship, saying such things as sex is a way to prove your love for me, if I don't get sex from you I'll get it somewhere else, reacting negatively with sadness, anger or resentment if you say no or don't immediately agree to something. Continuing to pressure you after you say no, making you feel threatened or afraid of what might happen if you say no, and trying to normalize their sexual expectations. For example, I need it, I'm a man. Mostly it's like trying to make you feel obligated to have sex with
0: them. I read an article a while ago that was written by a Christian man that said... That women need to submit to their husbands sexually, basically saying that you are not a Christian woman if you don't give your husband sex, and that's a sin. And I was like, Holy cow, that is so awful! Basically, you're saying that you have to have sex with your husband, otherwise. You're a bad wife. Sex is a way to be close and it's a way to be intimate, but you do not have to have sex, especially when he's an unsafe person to have sex with. That's awful to say you have to have sex with someone who is abusing you, who is unkind to you. Like my ex told me that I wasn't attractive and then he wondered why I didn't want to have sex with him. Like, why would I want to have sex with someone? Who doesn't find me attractive and he was abusive and blah, blah, blah. You know, I just think you guys aren't thinking through this. It would be weird if I wanted to have sex with you when you're cheating on me and treating me badly.
1: Right. Yeah. It doesn't make any sense, but they don't usually think clearly
0: anyways. (laughs) Instead of being able to have sex in a healthy way. If they're not healthy, the only ways they can think of to get sex would be coercion, which is a form of abuse. So my contention is that active porn users are always going to be abusive in one way or another. And this is one of the ways that we're talking about. Other ways that they can be abusive is not having sex with you at all, which also happened to me. My husband did not initiate sex for like six months. Zero. And I was really hurt by that. And he didn't try to do anything to improve our sex life or anything as I pulled away. So that's not a form of rape, but it's also another form of sexual abuse.
1: Right, it is. And actually, one of the studies that I looked at actually mentioned that withholding sex can be a form of sexual abuse.
0: That is something that the abuser, though, will hold against you. He'll say... Well, you're withholding sex, so that's a form of sexual abuse. So withholding sex is different than setting a boundary for safety. Exactly. This is why this issue is so difficult with therapists or with clergy or with other people who don't understand it is they can say, well, you're the abusive one because you've set a boundary and you're withholding sex. So it gets super complicated. So having someone who understands the issue like an APSATS coach or a therapist who understands abuse is essential to getting help. Otherwise, the addict or the abuser just keeps throwing it back in your face over and over and over and you keep being abused and coerced. We've all been in that cycle. So for our listeners... Let's talk about consent within marriage. A lot of people talk about consent outside of marriage, but what does consent inside of marriage look like?
1: Consent is ongoing. You have to continue to have consent. Personally, I didn't realize that. But consent, it's a mutual agreement between the partners about what they want. And it needs to happen every time. And just because you're in a relationship doesn't automatically give consent. One of the things you talk about is safety. And that's huge, because if you don't feel safe, then you wouldn't want to give consent. And then if they force themselves on you, then that's the abuse. And that's rape right there.
0: The other issue with consent is they need to be telling you the truth, right? They need to say, I would like to have sex with you. I'm asking for your consent. And in order to have your full consent, you need to know that I've been viewing porn and masturbating every day and having sex with prostitutes. Full consent means that you know the truth about who you're about to have sex with. Right, exactly. And there are lots of women that
1: have addict husbands that they end up with an STD or an STI and you know, a lot of times the husband's like, I don't know how you got that. You got that from the toilet.
0: So that is what consent involves. There are not addicts that listen to my podcast. That is not our audience here. But for you listeners, that's what you're looking for, right? For them to get your full consent, they need to be able to tell you the whole truth about who they are and what they've been doing. And without that, it is a consent issue. So most of us are dealing with a consent issue with a man who is refusing on purpose to tell us the truth in order to coerce consent.
1: You know, and there's one thing that the, the National Domestic Violence Hotline website says that really sticks out. It's not consent if for any reason you're afraid or unable to say no. So it's not consent if you're being manipulated, pressured, or threatened to say yes. It's also not consent if you or a partner is unable to legitimately give consent, which includes being asleep, unconscious, or under the influence of conscious altering substances like alcohol,
0: some prescription medications, and other drugs. And you're also unable to give consent if you don't have the full truth. They didn't put that on the website, but lies should be another one there, right?
1: Yes. That also goes in the manipulation too, though. So because they're already manipulating you and your relationship.
0: I just wish they would have put lies there just so that the men would know, oh, if I don't tell them the full truth about who I am and what I do, then I'm not receiving their actual consent and I'm manipulating them and abusing them. Yeah.
1: Yes, that would be great.
0: (laughs) That's what this podcast is for.
1: Yes. And I thought it was interesting because a lot of times they just talk about the sexual abuses and sexual harassment and physical sexual assault and things like that. Like that's what TV and movies, that's what they show. They don't show this other stuff. And so I thought it was really interesting that the National Domestic Violence Hotline includes that in their information about consent and about the sexual abuse by coercion.
0: Realizing that you've been sexually assaulted and or raped, most likely for years by your own husband is a traumatizing thing to discover. We're talking serious, serious stuff. I know a woman whose husband recently realized that he was abusive and How amazing is that? He's like, well, now that I know I'm abusive, I can get help for this. And so that's what these men need to realize. Like, I am an abuser, I am committing adultery, and I am sexually manipulative. Like, they need to realize those things in order to change. I want to tell one other story of a friend who she was dating someone and she believes in not having sex until you're married. And so she was dating them. She said something about how she'd gone too far. And I said, what do you mean? She's like, well, I said, did you have sex? And she said, well, I don't really know. Like, I didn't want to have sex. I kept saying no, but then we did have sex. So I'm so confused. And I said, so you were raped? And it was like I had punched her in the stomach, she didn't know that she had been raped until that moment. She started crying. And I went to hug her. And she was like, just just back away, back away from me, I could tell she was having a trauma response. And I said, Oh, I'm sorry. So I backed up. And she kind of put her hands on the counter and just was breathing and just kind of taking it in. And she looked like she was having kind of a panic attack. Actually, it took probably about five minutes for her to calm down. And she said, I didn't realize until this moment that I was raped by my boyfriend. And of so many women, I've heard stories on NPR lately about women who were like a little bit drunk and they were in there. Dorm room, for example, and a man came in and got in bed, and she said, No, no, but she didn't have the wherewithal to push him away. And she just thought, Oh, weird. I had sex with him last night. That's so weird. And I didn't really want to, not realizing it was rape. So I think part of the reason why rape is so difficult to understand is because many women are being raped without their own knowledge, but it's so similar to abuse. So many women are in abusive relationships. And if you ask them, Are you being abused? they would say, No. So the only way, to stop abuse and to stop rape and to stop all of these things is to educate women about what it looks like so that they can have words for what is happening to them. And then they're able to set boundaries around it. But I remember my clergy looking at me saying, do you feel safe? Do you think you're being abused? And I said, no. I said, no, no, I, I feel safe. And this was when he was punching walls. Why did I not know I was being abused? How does someone who has a master's degree and didn't get married till she was 30? How did I not know? And if I didn't know, then any woman could not know.
1: And I think it makes it harder because my husband, he didn't punch walls. Chucks. if we got into an argument, he would shut down completely and just keep it all in. And so it took me a while to realize that I had been abused. You know, there was gaslighting. He was always minimizing my feelings because he didn't think I should ever be angry about anything. And it was just things like that and it never dawned on me. I would have answered the same way. I would have said, "No, I don't think I'm being abused because that's not always what it looks like on TV and in movies." And so it's harder
0: to spot it. We need to have the most boring movie ever about what real abuse looks like. And it would be like a 10 year movie of weird events that happen that you're like, that's kind of weird. And I don't like this guy, but it would not be what we see right now on the movies. But I think it would help. At least we're doing our part. And, And I still don't know. I still don't know what I don't know about abuse. So I still don't know, would I be able to spot it better now? I hope so. And on this podcast, it's tough because I have therapists on, I have regular average women who have been in relationships with abusers and porn users and rapists. And now we know as much as we can know, but we don't know what we don't know. And so hopefully as we evolve over time, we will be able to know more and have better words for it. And that's why I'm constantly updating the website, just because we just don't know what we don't know. So what's your advice for women who, through this podcast, are suddenly realizing, holy cow, wait a minute.
1: Oh, my advice. I did talk about it with friends. So reaching out for support is helpful. And talking to a professional, that helps. And really... Understanding what it is and what you've been through, I think just knowing and knowing that you're not alone, I think those are the two biggest things that are helpful. And then finding somebody to talk about it that's going to be supportive, that's not gonna say, well, you're just making that up or there's no way because he's such a good guy.
0: I would say another thing is a safe person is not going to say, you need to get divorced right now, right? A safe person is going to say something like, whoa, I'm so sorry that you've been through that. What can I do to help, right? Or what do you need? Or what do you feel like is the right thing to do? And I will support you in what you decide. And, you know, that's what we're looking for when we're looking for a safe person. The culture of betrayal trauma recovery is that we feel like people can change. So there is this whole section of therapists and people who say, that men who exhibit behaviors consistent with narcissistic personality disorder, they can't ever change, right? Or an abuser can't ever change. Or once a rapist, always a rapist. At Betrayal Trauma Recovery, we do not feel like that. Like, I truly believe that people can change. That is the best case scenario, that they do change and they're able to live a full and healthy life. So at Betrayal Trauma Recovery, what we do and what our coaches do is enable and empower women to set boundaries around those unhealthy abusive behaviors until that person is actually changed until they have changed so that you are safe with them and then rebuild that relationship that's the best case scenario in so many of the cases the men aren't willing to change because they're not willing to admit what they have done or they're not willing to be honest and with that, you just have to keep those boundaries because they're just not safe enough to interact with.
1: Yeah. that. I mean, even now I have slipped and had sex with my husband when I really didn't want to because I felt guilty. But then I found out he felt guilty about it too because like he didn't know how I felt. I didn't share how I had felt until after he said something, you know, and so that to me shows huge, huge progress.
0: We are all learning and growing together. <laughs> And it's a process for everyone. It's a process for all of us. Well, Wendy, thank you for coming on today. I just want to thank her publicly for everything that she has done to support Betrayal Trauma Recovery. To find the link to that article, just go to btr.org. Go to the blog and you will find this podcast and all the information will be inside of that. Awesome. Thanks for having me. I realized that this podcast could have been triggery for you. And if it was triggery, you had a hard time with it i want to apologize uh, i hope that you're feeling okay and that you can get some support also this issue of rape is a uh, very tricky or lack of consent or sexual assault because a lot of people ask well why don't women report or if this did happen why aren't you reporting it And I even asked that question on an episode in the fall where a woman was talking about the sexual abuse of her dad. And the answer to that is we don't report because we know we won't win. We know that it's going to give us more trauma or more difficulty. And we might look like we're crazy because we don't have proof. I said on that podcast back in the fall that we should always report. And in this case, my feeling is... I wouldn't report that uh, in cases where I felt like my consent wasn't given because I didn't have the correct information. I would not report that as a rape, nor would I report that as a sexual assault, uh, only because it would drag me through the mud and I don't think I would win that case. I don't know how attorneys feel about this, I don't know how the criminal justice system feels about it, but I don't want any woman to put herself in danger of being humiliated or being abused more because she doesn't have proof. So that's a very clear and obvious answer for why women don't report these things. And also, that's not the goal, right? The goal is not necessarily to put someone in jail, but the goal is to seek safety ourselves and so boundaries are the way to do that. We need to set boundaries so that we can be safe. Our priority is our own safety. I ask that you make a recurring monthly donation of $10 to support this podcast so that we can continue to bring you the best that we know at the time, right? As we all are working toward recovery together, your recurring donation supports this podcast and helps us take this message to women throughout the world. Also, if this podcast is helpful to you, please rate it on iTunes or your other podcasting apps. Every single rating helps women who are isolated find us. And especially this week, take some time to take a few breaths and to get grounded, perhaps say a prayer, have the courage that it takes to stay safe and to stand for truth and righteousness. And until next week, stay safe out there.